Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix. From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of How I'd Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio, the home, of course, of common sense. It's a sparkling start to yet another week in the big wide world of fear, loathing and recrimination. But don't worry, there's none of that here at the world headquarters of the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We've been regaled all weekend with the news that we won't be having Christmas, that people are still queuing for petrol and toilet paper and that soon the world will probably end and we'll all be eating our own children. Can everyone please calm down a little bit? If you're panic buying for Christmas, you're an idiot. If you're stocking up on frozen turkey, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And if you really believe that the entire supply chain is going to seize up, you might want to take a long, hard look in the mirror before it cracks before your very eyes. Stop believing the hype, stop listening to the fear mongers and start living your life like someone who's actually got a brain. Please tell me what's happening where you are so that we can tell everyone else. I guarantee you I will not find anyone who's complaining about empty shelves, long queues or shortages of anything. And if you can prove me wrong, then please do. 03444991000. The energy situation is, of course, still a bit of a concern, uh, but that's much more because of the price of your supplies rather than the dire warnings that factories are going to close down forever and thousands are going to be thrown on the jobless heap. Last night, I noticed the lights in Canary Wharf are all switched off. Literally, the lights are off and there's nobody home. I'm sure that'll do the trick to make sure we have enough electricity to power all our iPhones. It's just unbelievable, isn't it? What is wrong with people? 03444991000. Up first this morning, we've got Nick Buckley, MBE, founder of the charity Mancunian Way, which fired him, then reinstated him last year after he was judged to have made the gross error of having an opinion that some people didn't actually like. He's here after spending a weekend with the Academy of Ideas and their festival in London. We'll be getting his take on the world we now inhabit. Peter Hitchens is around as well with his usual philosophical and forensic dissection of the weekend's news, plus his latest problem with the BBC uh, and its nasty habit of rewriting history. Jonathan Gullis MP will also check in. He got into some controversy of his own this weekend after declaring that anyone who used the term white privilege shouldn't because it is actually a racist term. Cue the usual Twitter outrage. We'll also be looking at the latest news from the NHS. Doctors are still not working hard enough, according to two new studies. Many of them are working the equivalent of a three-day week, and in some parts of the country, there is only one GP for 2,000 patients. Clearly, nothing is being done to fix the problem. Tell us what it's like where you are and we can tell everybody else. It's what we do here uh, at the Independent Republic of Mike, where I'm delighted to tell you that the summer uh, is still here. The summer is in October now. doesn't happen in August anymore. Quite nice weather out there. Enjoy it. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, I'm delighted to say that for the first time properly on my show anyway, Nick Buckley is here. Uh, he's a man with an MBE, which is rather nice to, to know. Uh, you're the founder, of course, of the Mancunia Way charity, which I yep. think was a sort of, and still is, a homeless charity to some extent. Yep. Um, and you're here because you've been in London with Claire Fox at the Academy of Ideas weekend, which looked like it was quite a do. It was amazing. Yeah. I think, you know, there must have been close... I haven't got the figures, but there was hundreds, if not thousands, of people there over mm. the two-day weekend, Saturday, Sunday... Hundreds of speakers, 
opportunities to talk about almost anything that is probably taboo today. Yes. So racism, COVID, the green agenda, you know, are we living in fear? Mm. Is the government controlling us? All these conversations right. were had by different people with the public. Mm. And that shows you, doesn't it, that there's a real thirst for that kind of thing because people are sick and tired, I think, of being told what to think, told what to do. I mean, I was tracking the, the news over the weekend and so much stuff was being written about, you know, how factories mm. are going to shut down, we're going to run out of power, there's going to be no turkeys at Christmas. You know, I mean, all this kind of fear-mongering that's going on, much of it entirely wrong, in my view. It is, but I think we're still at a stage where the majority of people still believe this and are still quite happy to take the news and believe it 100% because we've been spoon-fed since the Second World War. Mm. Everything is always someone else's fault and the state is always there to protect us and, and make our decisions for us. Mm. But more and more people, such as this weekend, are saying, no, yes. I want to have a say in my country. Right. I want to have a say about the life for my children. And I might not be right... I still deserve a saying. Right. Well, also, you want to talk about things because, I mean, mm. I was saying this to Claire Fox uh, on Friday, who <clears throat> was in before this whole thing kicked off. And I said, you know, nobody ever suffered from having a conversation about something, even if mm. it's a, an unpalatable one, even if it's not very pleasant, even if parts of it might even be offensive. You don't actually do any damage by having the conversation. You may learn something. You may learn something. You may realise that your thoughts are incorrect. You may find out a new piece of information that then you can use to help you formulate your ideas and your thoughts. Nothing bad comes out of speaking to people you disagree with. No, exactly right. And that's the whole sort of bread and butter, isn't it, really, of what we have, have been brought up, certainly what I was brought up to believe. You know, I had a very argumentative sort of father uh, grew up in London, but they, my, both my parents were Scottish. We used to talk all the time, mm. which is why I now talk all the time. You know, um, and, and you know, if you didn't have a decent argument, yeah. you know, you weren't going to really get much of a of a say in in that evening's you know conversation. And so, yeah. I think I wonder whether schools should do more of it. I mean, I know that it's a bit sort of seen probably as a bit old fashioned to have debating societies, but I don't think that would do people any harm. I think it's probably needed more than ever, and that's because of phones and social media yes i mean it's getting worse no one speaks to anybody anymore no now. nobody has a friendly chat and um, you know you will text people rather than phone people mm. um and we're losing the skill of communication because communication is not just about your words mm. it's about your body language it's yes. about you being able to see in your the other person's eyes mm. that they're upset that they're offended right. that they may be a bit vulnerable it's about seeing those body language things but if we're just staring at our screens all yes. the time we're I think that's a very that. good point because I think people have lost or maybe never had uh, in some cases the art of, of argument mm. so that you know on Twitter everything's an outrage I mean mm. we're going to be talking as I said to Jonathan Gullis uh, later on in this hour um, who was absolutely slaughtered all over the weekend on Twitter mm. because of something he said at Tory party conference about yeah. white privilege. Now, it's a perfectly reasonable thing for him to say it, and even if he didn't like the fact that he said it, you know, it's so... The, the, the overreaction to everything yeah. now is crazy, isn't it? But it turns out he was true. Yeah. The, the, the term white privilege is racist. Yes, of course it is. Well, anything I would have thought that has an attachment of a skin colour to yeah. it is, is racist, yeah, isn't it? Because, I mean, I always turn it around the other way and say, well, if you, kiss, <clears> if you call it black privilege or black something else... People would say, we can't say that. Mm. How can you? Tell us a bit about your story, because, Nick, most people might know it, but yeah, there'll be yeah. some people listening now who, who won't remember what happened to you last year. Yeah, well, 15 months ago, I thought I was a free person living in a free country and had the right to express my views. It sounds quite silly now, but that's what I thought 15 months ago. Mm. Then we had the Black Lives Matter protests in um, London that turned violent, and I decided... I'm going to look into Black Lives Matter. I've not really heard of the group before, so right. I went on a 
went to Google, found the website, their website, read their website and thought, oh, I don't like the sound of much of this. Mm. So I wrote an article about it and put it on LinkedIn. Right. And it just talked about defunding the police, breaking up the nuclear family, um, you know, anti-capitalism. Basically deconstructing capitalism. Exactly. That's what they wanted to do, yeah, wasn't Marxist. it? Marxist. And I yeah. put that in it that I believe they're Marxist. And then they ended the article by saying, if you want to improve the lives of black people in the UK... These are my suggestions from mm. someone who's worked on the streets in diverse neighbourhoods for two decades. Right. Um, went on LinkedIn. It was fine. Some people agreed. Some people didn't agree. But then someone copied the link to Twitter. Mm. Twitter's mental. Um, it really is, isn't it? It is. It's getting worse as well. Do you think? It's not. I don't think it's worse for me. Um, I think it's. Yeah, I, I think it's all. I don't know if it's worse or not. It, it, it's a lot better for me now. Right. Um, but yeah, someone set a petition up to have me fired from right. the charity because I'm obviously... And were you on Twitter at that time? Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm obviously a Nazi and a racist for even talking about Black Lives Matter. Yeah. No one criticised me for the article. The criticism was, how dare you as a white man talk about a black issue? Mm. That really was the criticism. Yes. And that was an interesting time, wasn't it? Because we <clears> felt it, I think, here as well. And I think in all of the media and in all of the coverage of the, mm. of the, of the BLM protests, because there was this kind of... Um, what I would call incredibly kind of uh, fascist-like zeal, which, with which people attacked mm. anybody white to say, you yeah. can't possibly know what racism is like because you're white. Yeah. Which is kind of like saying you can't possibly know what it's like to be sick yeah. unless you're sick. Yeah. Which is kind of not really, doesn't make much sense if, if you want to talk to a doctor, does it? No. And I put, if you look at where the blame should go for this, I put it squarely at the feet of Boris Johnson because he said nothing... He was a missing man for mm. months, and he. Well, should... he's done a lot of that, hasn't he? he? Yeah, yeah. When something difficult comes up, he he disappears, yeah. and I think the reason why is he read his. I think he read classics at university. Is is wrote history books, mm. and he's good at looking at someone like Churchill, temporarily taking one of the traits from Churchill and thinking he's Churchill, where really. He's just taking a trait for a small amount of time. He's not Churchill. Well, also, there's He's more to being that. Churchill than saying you want to be Churchill. Exactly. A bit like me saying I want to be, you know, Ronaldo. Yeah. You know, I'd quite like that. But, yeah, I yeah. mean, and it's not going to happen just because I want yeah. it to, you yeah. know. So how many people signed the petition to get you fired? So 450 people signed to get me sacked. That's not many. Not many at all. The board I mean, I think I've had panicked. more people uh, asking to, for me to be sacked than that. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, you have to duck your gate. <laughs> <laughs> um, the board panicked, who I appointed... And they sacked me over email. Right. You're, you're terminated immediately. And did they offer you an explanation? No, just one a one-sentence email. Mm. You're terminated immediately. Goodness me. So and then, that totally is cancelled culture, isn't it? To- cancelled completely. You're out. Completely destroyed. Reputation gone. My charity gone that I set up, I founded, mm. I funded for the first right. couple of years. And presumably you were taking... I mean, presumably you, 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 you're paying. You're being, I, I was taking wage at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so they're saying, basically, <clears throat> we fired you. Uh, I mean, I'm not even sure that's legal, is it? Well, it turns out it wasn't legal. So right. then I decided to say, no, I'm not having this. Mm. So the, I worked with the Free Speech Union, who are fantastic. If you like to talk, you need to be a member of the Free Speech Union because you don't know when you need them. They got a solicitor involved, pro bono. He looked at my contract and said, clear cut, breach of contract. So we wrote to the board and we said, if you don't resign, we're going we're going to sue you. And they resigned within 18 hours, all in disgrace. And I got my job back and got right. the charity back. And how hard was that to do just for you kind of emotionally? Because it was a must five, have been quite a difficult time. Oh, horrendous. It was a five-week journey. The first week, I was completely a broken man. Um, it was only the second week I started fighting back. The right. first week, I was 
grieving. I was in shock. I was embarrassed. Yes. I was reflecting. It's a strange feeling, yeah. isn't it? Because whenever you're in the middle of something like that, and I know what that's a bit yeah. like, um, it can be very debilitating because well, you're not you, quite you, sure what's going to happen next. Yeah, and if you're a decent person, you start looking at yourself mm. thinking... Maybe I did cross a line. Yeah. Maybe I have done something wrong right. because I know. And then I'm there's not a perfect. bit of that where you go, actually, I should have done it more cleverly, or mm. I should have done it a different way, or yeah. maybe you know I've dropped myself in this yeah. situation. Did you have any support? Did you have family around you that were people that you could talk to? Not really, only because of my embarrassment. So I didn't want to talk to anybody. Right. I was embarrassed. So that's was... that's an interesting take on it as well, isn't it? Mm. Because you know, I think a lot of people listening to this who are in the public eye, for example, will feel that because. It's happened to so many people, yeah. you know. Look at the guy from Mumford and Sons, yes. You know who happened to say that he quite liked um, Jonathan Nino's book. Mm. Um, I think his name is yeah. the American guy. Yeah. Um, and he's now no longer with Mumford and Sons, yeah. and he had to leave the band. And mm. I mean, you know, he was denounced by everybody, right, left, and centre. And luckily, I think he's quite a strong individual, and yeah. so he'll probably be okay. And he's got money and all of that. But but it is a very odd thing to happen to you, isn't it? And we only hear about the famous people. This is happening to people who are stacking shelves in Tesco's or driving a bus in London. Yes. And these are the people whose lives are completely destroyed and we never hear about them because they're nobody's. Mm. And, and I wonder as well whether it's censorious for people themselves. You know, like I meet a lot of people who say, oh, well, I can't really say this yeah. at work or I can't really talk about that. All the time. You know, I'm very careful about, you know, what I say when I'm out in public. Yeah. It's a very odd place that we found ourselves mm. in, isn't it? Someone asked me a question yesterday at the Battle of Ideas. They asked me, what are the things we're not allowed to say? Yes. And I, I gave it a minute start and I thought, that's a good question because people say, you know, absolutely everything. And my answer really was, what you're not allowed to say is what you in your head deem you shouldn't say because it's all self-censorship. Mm. So we'll have one person who may criticise Black Lives Matter. Yeah. So, well, we criticise Black Lives Matter, but the vast majority of people are self-censoring and won't say things. Yes. And that's the worst type of censorship right. because they're afraid just to express their views. Yes, exactly right. And um, would you say that's quite sort of widespread in all areas of life now? Absolutely. And mm. I think the more money you earn, the more middle class you are, the the more it is. Yeah. Because you, you see more, you've got more to lose. And what about your weekend with the Academy of Ideas? What did you <clears> talk about? What was your kind of... Um, lesson for yep. people I had um, I was on two events the first event was um, I can't remember the full title but it was basically should we should we boycott companies we don't like right and the second one was with free speech union and that was on cancel culture right and so you told your story presumably told my story and then gave advice about what people need to do and the advice was simple the first thing is start using the word no Yes. So when people want you to do things or attend training or say this or say that, and you don't want to, mm. the answer is no, that's the answer. And in some companies, it's obviously more difficult than others because mm. they may want you or require you to do that. I mean, we've got already in, in America quite a lot of companies demanding that people are double vaccinated before they can yep. come into the office, before they can even apply for a job. And they can presumably put conditions on your contract mm. as well that you must attend, I don't know, certain diversity classes or yep. something like that. Do you see that getting more kind of endemic? Do you see that getting more uh, compulsory, if you like? Absolutely. And what I don't want is people to be a martyr right. and get sacked over something tiny because right. they made a stand because people have mortgages and mm. families to sure. raise. So it's about. And that's what people are scared of, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's about fighting clever. Mm. So it's about picking your battles there may be small battles it may be this you know i've got to attend the diversity training course 
I've got to do it. My boss is big into this. Mm. So do you know what? I'm sick that day. Right. So I don't attend because I phoned in sick. Right. And I may take a day's lost pay because I've been sick and mm. I don't have sick pay. Mm. Well, that's your little battle you can fight and win. You can, but what if they come back and say, well, I'm sorry you were sick, but now you're going to have to do it next week. And, and maybe you will have to do it, mm. but at least then you've, you've, you did fight a battle right. and you managed to win. Other people around you will see, he didn't turn up for that. That might give somebody else a little bit of courage for them to fight their little mm. battle. And we're the majority and we all do our little bit. It all adds up to a tsunami of, of, of change. Yes. But if we're all just saying, I'm just going to go along with it, yeah. Then eventually we'll end up in a really dark place, and we'll, so. and we'll wonder how we got here. Well, and, right. And well, the as, is, as we've seen yeah. with the kind of advent of various COVID restrictions, mm. you know, the things they said they would never do, and they're they now did. doing. Mm. Uh, the things that they said they won't do, they're now considering. Mm. Um, but I mean, again, I don't want to sit here as as if you know we are the great um, you know soothsayers of the world. Mm. You know, it might not be a terrible thing to have a diversity. Um, a session that you go and sit through but what I don't want to do is be lectured at and told that because I'm white that somehow I'm doing something wrong or that I've done something wrong in the past or that for yeah. some reason I mean I was actually getting worked up yesterday my, 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 my son wanted to play Monopoly uh, my sister's visiting from America so we had a game of Monopoly and they've changed the um, the currency right so they've now got this Monopoly sign mm -hmm. instead of a pound sign and I said, sort of just half-jokingly, well, it's probably been something to do with slavery. You know, we're probably not allowed to use the pound sign in Monopoly anymore. So now it's, it doesn't actually look like a proper currency. You can't really tell what it is, no. you know? And you just think, what's the point of that? You know, we're hearing this morning from British Airways that, uh, you know, they're not going to yeah. use the term ladies and gentlemen anymore. And you think, well, that's just ridiculous, you know? They may not use that I'm term anymore. I'm all for anymore. equality. But, you know, yeah. St Andrews University, for example, last week, this probably came up at the weekend, have declared that the word equality doesn't mean treating people equally doesn't mean treating no. people the same it means treating people differently and mm. you're going well that's actually not what it means that's the precise <laughs> opposite of mm. what it means you know yeah but the, let's go back to the ba so ba now are not going to use gendered terms because they want to be compassionate and tolerant and inclusive but yet they're still going to fly to countries where they execute gay people where where they treat women as second-class citizens yeah. they're still going to fly to china where they've got a million muslims locked up in concentration mm. camps so how tolerant and inclusive yes are they really i know it really is extraordinary. It's great to talk to you, Nick. Stay with us. We're going to take a little break. Nick Buckley's here, of course, founder of the charity Mancunian Way, a man who's standing up for free speech in a way that you probably never thought he would have to do. Uh, this is Talk Radio. I'd love to hear from you as well. Don't forget, we take your calls on this show because your opinions matter to us as well. The Independent Republic of Mike Gray on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I'm talking to Nick Buckley, MBE, founder of the charity Mancunian Way. He's been at the weekend's uh, events going on here in London uh, with the Academy of Ideas. Claire Fox was here actually on Friday uh, telling us about what was coming up. Uh, Nick was there all weekend. And did you see people from sort of all walks of life? I mean, I know a lot of people that listen to this show were there uh, because mm. I saw them posting on Twitter. They had a really good time and enjoyed it and all of that. Um, and I think, you know, maybe it is the beginning of something. I mean, is there a political movement, do you think, that follows on from this in terms of where we are? Because I hear a lot of people saying, was Conservative, can't vote for Boris Johnson again, mm. you know, don't really believe in him, don't really believe in what he's trying to do. Labour Party's busted, mm. you know, there's no point anymore. The Lib Dems, forget about it. Uh, obviously, Richard Tice is a regular contributor here yep. uh, from the Reform Party. But is there something political as a movement that could come from all of this there is just for disclosure i'm a member of the reform party yes so i don't want yeah um well that would make you very popular on this show because a lot of people that listen have joined the reform party in the yeah. hopes that you know it might be something that could lead to a bigger movement 
and and hopefully it will because mm. I agree with what you just said about the the conservatives and Labour. Um, at the event, I was surprised the mixture of people I spoke to. I would say I spoke to more you would class as old Labour voters yes. than I did Tories. Really. Um, and there's free speech in the Labour Party is practically zero. dead, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Dead and, and buried. Yeah. And they, you know, they were saying to me, you know, I'm, I had one guy saying he was an ex-miner. I remember someone saying that they were a former communist, but not communist now. And the, what they were saying to me was, I've got opinions I want to talk about, hmm. but I'm not allowed to talk about them. And that's the issue what people are thinking are talking about now is. Why can't I talk about mm. what I want to talk about? Yes, and why should I be fearful of saying something rather than doing something? You know, mm. I mean, Keir Starmer's so frightened of trying to figure out what a woman is that he can't define it. If, if he can't answer some of these simple questions, yeah. then... I mean, I saw him being asked that question yeah. by Ma, and I was cringing for him, because if you can't answer yeah. that, what's going... It's, 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 it's like through the, we're through the looking glass now, where up is down and down mm. is up, and... I, I don't know what the answer to that is. Mm. Well, I think the answer is to be more um, egalitarian with your thoughts, isn't it? To be more broad church mm. with your ideas and to say, look, we are the Labour Party. We represent the people of Britain, mm. right? Whether they be working people, whether they be non-working people, children, teenagers, old age pensioners. Um, many of them think different things. You mm. know, it's almost in, un, unbelievable to assume that everybody thinks the same because they, they mm. don't it's a bit mm. like when people talk about black lives matter and and i've got uh, friends and we, we all have i'm sure in, in this business um you know who are from ethnic minorities who are not left wing yeah. you know they're actually quite right wing yeah. and they don't have a, a sort of catch-all uh, just because you're black this is what you think yeah. or just because you're asian this is what you think it's nonsense it's racist yeah well it, of course it is it's like saying all white people think the same way well yeah. we don't do we no absolutely not it's incredible mm. remarkable so what's in it for the rest of the week for you what's your what's your role now at the Mancunian way what do you do there so I'm now chair of the charity I resigned as chief exec when I came back because the we had a new board um, appointed and because they were new they were struggling so um, I, I resigned as chief exec so I now work on the charity two days a week I do a lot of writing yeah um, I've got a book coming out next um, month called Lessons in Courage, okay. which is all about the fight back. And but what it's really about is trying to show people how how not to be a coward because this mm. is the crux of the issue. Is there's too many people taking the easy road that's going to lead to destruction because the easy road is the easy road. Yeah, but it's not going to end well. And I want to give people those examples and those ideas of how to say no. Mm. How, how to be a better person, how to realise that you're not perfect and there is evil in your heart and good in your heart. Yeah. And just because you disagree with someone, it doesn't make them evil. Right. It just means you need to talk a bit more to understand why they've come to that conclusion. Right. I mean, it sounds like perfect sense to me. You'll have to come back when you've got the book out yep. and uh, we'll talk some more. But uh, for the moment, thank you very much indeed. Nick Buckley, MBE, founder of the charity Mancunian Way, a man uh, that talks a lot of sense. He's been through the mill. Uh, some of you may have been as well. And if you're in a position so you don't have to uh, tell us exactly what your name is, uh, if you've been put under pressure not to say things or you've been in trouble for saying things at work, we'd love to hear your stories as well because this is a fight that people need to take to the, uh, the enemy, as it were. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk 
Radio. Now, uh, we were talking there about freedom of speech, about freedom of ideas, about the paucity uh, of courage out there, because so many people are frightened to say uh, what they think other people might not like to hear. Well, Jonathan Gullis is a Conservative MP for Stoke-on-Trent North, and he got himself into a bit of hot water uh, over the weekend, again, because of something that he said at Tory party conference, which is entirely, in my view, accurate. He basically said that people who use the phrase white privilege are using the term wrongly, because it is, in fact, a racist term. Jonathan, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Brent. How are you? Uh, very well indeed. Did you expect that? I mean, uh, I mean, I can't imagine that you, that you did, but Twitter went absolutely bananas, didn't it? Well, the best thing I ever did, Mike, was come off Twitter ages ago because <laughs> I realised it was just uh, for the metropolitan elite who, uh, who are obsessed with it, or for quality journalists like yourself willing to take on the woke agenda. Yes. Um, so I've, I've avoided it. I, I got text, actually, by friends saying that, um, James O'Brien was upset, so I knew he must have done something right. <laughs> Excellent plan. The dark side is always uh, is always working against the people who would like freedom. I mean, that is the problem, isn't it? But tell us about it, because this term white privilege has kind of come out of nowhere, hasn't it? Well, first of all, Mike, what I found quite amusing was that it was reported as some sort of leaked conversation, and actually it was uh, at a panel event, at conference, which was widely advertised by the Conservative Friends of Education yes. who held, hosted the event, as well as within the comms agenda. So this secret meeting that wasn't so secret, um, which I found quite amusing. But yeah, the term white privilege, look, we looked at this on the Education Select Committee, and I totally agree with Dr Tony Sewell, who's obviously from the Commission on Race yeah. and Equality, who said that actually what we need to be doing is focusing on the real needs of real people and not getting caught up in divisive terminology such as white privilege. You mm. are correct. It is something that's recently come about. And despite the fact that Labour Party MPs are saying, are saying to me, this is somehow um, widely accepted. Well, no, it's not. It's controversial. It's divisive. It pits people against one another. It doesn't bring people together. And what I love about the United Kingdom is how that we are a community and society that celebrates people uh, from all backgrounds, whether they were born here, whether they're refugees, like we saw with Mo Farah, for example, all the way through to some of our greatest um, Britons out there possible who are obviously from different racial ethnic backgrounds. Mm. So I think that it's very easy to get bogged down uh, in targeting people or calling people out on the colour of their skin when actually we should be talking about how we can level up and deliver opportunity across the country. Well, that's the thing, because um, I think you make the point uh, and have made this point before, that if you go uh, to some parts of, of Stoke where you, uh, which, which you represent, you know, you will see plenty of people who are certainly not privileged and who are very white and who live with pretty poor lives because their opportunities are not really there for them. You hit the nail on the head. You know, I, I've said this to Labour MPs, to any of the woke Twitter mob. They're more than welcome to Ball Green, the Miners Estate in Kids Grove or Talk Pits and go around and knock on doors and tell people they're privileged. They may not like the answer they get back. Uh, and yeah. they set people in my patch won't certainly be engaging this nonsense. Look, by saying this term white privilege, what we're doing is, as I say, driving a wedge in between people based on the colour of their skin. That mm. is not what a British values of a tolerant society is about. And I am really concerned that this is creeping into classrooms. At the end of the day, it is a pernicious ideology, as Kenny Badenoch has previously said, linked to critical race theory. It shouldn't be taught in our classrooms. Uh, it's certainly, and because ultimately, teachers are not there to push their own political agenda. They're there to offer balanced uh, viewpoints, a balanced uh, understanding of the history of our country, and to make sure that kids ultimately are well-educated so they can go on to higher education, further education, or into the workforce. Well, that's it's right. Not, it's just not appropriate for teachers to be pushing an ideology. And when I've had loads of teachers email me in outrage in my inbox saying that um, they are happy to 
be politically divisive in their classroom. They're happy to bash the Tories. Well, that's a really sad state of affairs that education's going to itself. And as a former teacher, I know that I never uh, allow that barrier to be crossed. The greatest uh, teacher I've ever had who inspired me into the profession was Dr. Simon People, a proud socialist and leader of the Labour group on Tamworth Borough Council. Right. So, you know, there you go. But he was also able to teach me the arguments for Thatcherism as well as against Thatcherism in a way that engaged me without him pushing his own viewpoints upon me. Well, that's right. I mean, I was just talking to Nick Buckley, who was in the studio this morning with us, uh, talking about the whole Academy of Ideas weekend and all of that and how, you know, there is this kind of uh, view abroad that there are certain views basically you should not have. And I think that all starts in school, it seems to me, that, you know, the school kids are going to then, if they do go to university, uh, they're taking those ideas with them. They've already been kind of taught not to speak out about things that they think might upset people. Absolutely. And I think if anyone wants to understand why I'm so anti this use of the term white privilege, they should go and read pages 14 to 17 of the Left Behind White Pupils from Disadvantaged Backgrounds report the Education Select Committee did, which was majority voted through all due to the Conservative members on that uh, panel, where we made it very clear that it implies collective guilt, which is not acceptable. As I say, it pits people against one another. Let's be honest, right? You know, Stoke on Trent, sadly, used to have eight BNP councillors. If you want to recruit for the far right, what you want to do is go to these white working class communities and you say to those young men in particular that somehow they're privileged, that they should be disenfranchised from society. That's, that is giving the ammunition the far right wants in order to recruit these people. I don't want these people to be recruited by the far right. The far right repulse me and disgust me. So what we need to do is to make sure that these young people understand that they are stakeholders of society, that yes, they will face maybe different challenges to someone from a black African or black Caribbean uh, background in some regards but ultimately the issue with some parts of inner london as there are in some parts of stoke-on-trent is there's not been good quality to access of equal opportunity mm. there's no question about that and the education committee's own report uh, which you're referring to back in june said basically uh, that white working class pupils have been let down for decades you're, you're bang on you know the, the statistics don't lie if you're a white free school mill eligible pupil, white British free school mill eligible pupil in this country, you are underperforming when it comes to uh, meeting your, standard, uh, your expected standard of development in literacy and numeracy below other ethnic groups. Mm. Uh, if you're a free school mills white pupil, again, your attainment eight score is below uh, the average. We, only, we know that only 16% of white British free school mill students are going to higher education by the age of 19, compared to 72.8% of Chinese free school mills mm. pupils. Now, look, there is Gypsy, Roma and Irish travellers who are underperforming lower than that. But the statistics don't lie. And these statistics have been overlooked or forgotten for decades. And what we did with our report is highlight the fact that it's time to have an honest conversation about places like Stoke-on-Trent, where it's predominantly white working class. And sadly, they're not getting the academic results that they deserve, which means that they're not getting the higher, um, uh, higher uh, better job opportunities, which means they're not earning the higher wages and therefore improving their standard mm. of living. Yes. And so what is the answer, Jonathan, in the, both the short term and the long term? How do you fix this? Well, in our report, we made it very clear, and I agree with what we said in the report, which is we are, we're asking schools simply to consider whether the promotion of political, contra politically controversial terminology is consistent within their duties mm. under the Equality Act 2010. The other thing that we, I know that we're asking for, Dr Tony Sewell was supportive of, is the idea about whether or not we need to have some sort of school leadership expectations set up around political neutrality mm. and transparency in curriculum design. Because even Dr Javid Khan of Bernardo's, a man I have huge respect for, who controversially pushed out free, um, about white privilege to, let's not forget, over 80% of the people he works with, his organisation work with, who are, by the way, white British working class, 
even he agrees it's not an ideal phrase and that it creates barriers in society. So let's actually have some expectations. Let's have some calmness around this discussion. Everyone is getting very angry at me. Take a breath and let's agree the classroom is not the place to push extremist ideology. And it's a place for kids to get knowledge, to bring them up in a society where they're proud to be part of it and to teach them about tolerance, diversity and respect and inclusion, not exclusion just because of the colour of someone's skin. And I would like to see, and I said this to, um, uh, to Nick when he was here as well, a bit more kind of talked about how to argue with each other, you know, because I think we have a problem in this country, as you very well illustrate about Twitter, where people are just all shouting at one another. You know, they don't seem to be able to have a, an intelligent discourse. I mean, you know, people might disagree with you. It's perfectly fine. People might say you said something which we think is offensive. But let's talk about it rather than actually, you know, trying to shut you down or have you fired or, you know, have you silenced? Well, exactly. Look, <laughs> Mike, I grew up with my mum as a Conservative, my father, biological father, as a Liberal Democrat, my stepfather, who I've lived with since I was two, is also called Dad, confusingly, as a Labour Party supporter. So I grew up with all three major political parties. I volunteered between the ages of 16 and 18 for all three parties, uh, and before my parents allowed me to make a decision at the age of 18 of who I was going to support and who I was going to join. Mm. Um, and I learned a lot from that. As I said, the teacher who inspired me is a Labour Corbynista socialist, a proud, mm. open one in that regard. And the people within my own family would completely disagree. Even my own partner probably disagrees with me more than she, more than I probably should care to admit. Mm. But that's the beautiful thing, right? We're able to have grown-up conversations around a dinner table or in our living rooms right. or over a glass of wine without it getting heated. Talk radio epitomises this perfectly. You are an opportunity uh, station for free speech and for challenging uh, positions. And ultimately, that's what we should be doing. Mm. Good discourse and debate leads to better policy-making and decision-making. And that's something we should celebrate. Absolutely right. Let me just get you back to the old-fashioned uh, world of politics for a moment, Jonathan, before we let you go. Um, I'm, I'm not buying this business of you know shortages everywhere, Christmas cancelled and all that nonsense, the doom-mongers of uh, Mail Online and others who are telling us that people are queuing up for everything. You know, I picked up some petrol last night. There was no queue at all. I went into Marks & Spencer's to buy some food. Uh, there was nothing missing. You know, I'm not really buying this. But there is a problem with the energy um, crisis because it's a price driven thing an awful lot of people aren't going to be able to afford to pay um their uh, uh, their bills when they start coming in towards uh, winter time um do you think the government should be doing more to kind of solve that well look i i've heard what the government's been doing at the end of the day we're keeping the uh, energy cap in place which is protecting consumers obviously that energy cap was set and will last all the way through to the 31st of march 2022 so um whilst that cost now increased cost is being uh, imposed upon the uh, sector itself is not being imposed upon the consumer because of the energy cap that's in place. So that protection should give people the confidence. We obviously know that if um, some of the businesses that have fallen down, there are mechanisms in place where other um, energy sector businesses can come in and take up uh, those customer bases. And that seems to be working relatively well to date. Uh, there is something to be said about energy intensive industries. Look, I'm in Stoke-on-Trent, the ceramics industry. Uh, obviously, increasing gas prices are going to cost them an increase in their plate. Uh, they already face tariff barriers, for example, into the US of 25%. They want to make sure they're competitive with the UK, lead, UK leading and world leading when it comes to high quality ceramics. So I think there's something that needs to be done around specific sectors. And the business secretary said that is being looked at with the Treasury Department. Right. And discussions are underway. So I have to just trust the experts at the end of the day. But, well, there seems um, to be a I bit of a want... row about that, doesn't there? Because some people are saying that that's not the case. And actually, there haven't been any conversations going on. Well, 
Look, all I can say is I'm sure the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy is in, in chats with the, with the Chancellor. I don't doubt those two are talking to each other. Whether uh, officials at certain levels are communicating it, I don't know. But I have full faith that the Secretary of State and the Chancellor are both in conversation. They are looking to how we can resolve mm. this. Um, obviously, long-term issue, which is going to be about the cost, because ultimately that is going to be something that's going to need to be addressed. But I do support the government in wanting to see nuclear energy, uh, greener forms of energy invested in. So ultimately, that will help uh, diversify our energy market. And I think that will go a long way in the future as well. I mean, I think we definitely need to have more of our own energy on our own home soil, don't we? I mean, that's what this is proving. Absolutely. And that's why the, uh, want, uh, you know, the need to invest within nuclear energy within the United Kingdom, as well as looking at continuing to expand our European leading offshore wind programme is a real positive step forward. Um, at Chatley Whitfield, collaring my own patch, there's potential for a solar farm up there that could provide a lot of energy. So you've got geothermal potential as well that could be looked into. So the UK is a hotbed of green innovation and technolo technological ideas to the future. And I think that we just have to have that faith, but also not to panic and make sure people are reminded the energy cap is in place. People are therefore protected um, when it comes to their costs over these winter months. OK. Jonathan Gullis, thank you very much indeed. Conservative MP there for Stoke-on-Trent North, uh, talking about white privilege and why, it's uh, as a term, it should not be used and it should not be used to beat anybody up with uh, or to, in fact, make people feel in any way guilty because of the colour of their skin. It's absolutely mad. It's bonkers. And it's not good for free speech either. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, it is without further ado, I think we should talk to Peter Hitchens uh, for some sanity, uh, often restoring it at 11 o'clock or just thereafter every single Monday. Peter, very good morning to you. Morning. I must say, I really enjoyed, uh, I read it on the bus this morning, actually on the way in, uh, your piece from The Critic um, about industrial correspondence. It really did, uh, I knew quite a few of the names in there, so it gave me an extra sort of glow, but uh, it was quite a remarkable um, recollection of the way things used to be. Very funny. Well, a lot of people have enjoyed it. Uh, I'm not quite sure why so much, but they, perhaps <laughs> it opens with a huge, bearded, unconscious man uh, lying in the bottom of a, of a telephone booth while the phone <laughs> swings gently over his head and a voice comes out of it saying, Hello? Hello? Why have you stopped? This is, this is, uh, that's how it begins. Yes. Uh, this is what it was like. I mean, the, the, the person involved, who actually I, I don't think would have at all minded if I named him, but I, I was a bit worried that he might have some relatives who'd be upset. <laughs> but he, he, he just completely lost consciousness in the middle of dictating his story right. uh, to his office. And then uh, Paul Routledge, who was at that time Labour editor of the Times, uh, and is still very much with us, writing yes. mainly the Daily Mail. Yeah, no, Paul, yeah. I came, came along and, and, and saw this, this, this figure lying slumped in an enormous heap. I picked up the phone and uh, said hello, tried slightly to imitate Bob's, uh, sorry, whoever it was, accent. And, um, and there it was. 
he then he finished the um, he finished the story uh, in the correct style, and it appeared in the paper. That was the great uh, skill all, as well, wasn't well, it? Well, that was typical of the times. We looked after each other in, in the industrial correspondence, even though we, we fought like cats for, for the stories and we, uh, and we competed like mad. We understood that, uh, that we had to look after each other a bit. And uh, it, it also, generally, we used to get telephoned in the middle of the night, probably three or four times a week, yeah. to, uh, to follow up our, our rival stories. So some people would, uh, would, would let others know what they were going to have in the papers, so mm. they would really sort of follow it. But it wasn't. It, it was. It, it was an absolute omitar. You, you weren't allowed to break those embargoes or do anything about right. it. Unless you were called. But it was very competitive, but also also very supportive. And mm. I have to say, it was also in many cases extremely drunk. Yes, but <laughs> I mean, the, again, that was that was sort of the the order of the day, wasn't it? I mean, there was definitely honour among thieves. When I was in um, shortly before I got to America, actually, the Grenada thing happened, where the American. Uh, military invaded an island which was seemingly occupied by a bunch of students and it wasn't exactly uh, um, as, as, as I think the man in, uh, uh, in the, uh, the movie A Few Good Men say, uh, many of them actually surrendered to a crew from CNN, they were so unsure of what to do but there was a, a telegraph correspondent who was similarly uh, imbued with a love of drink and he completely missed everything but was lying sort of comatose in his hotel room and he got, he w- awoke in the morning to find a piece of paper, a telegram that had been shoved under his door, congratulating him on leading the paper. And it had come from the editor and he didn't remember filing anything because he hadn't filed anything, but it had been done for him by one of his colleagues. And he was well, very, very kind and, 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 and absolutely right too. But the, the drink was a problem in yeah. those days. And there was, there was, it, it, although one makes light of it a bit, it, it, it did destroy people. Oh, yeah. And some people it very nearly destroyed and it certainly seriously damaged their health. But it was, it was a thing at the time mm. and... Uh, Anybody reading the newspapers at that time has to be aware of the fact that it was going on. And just as in some literary careers, a lot of a lot of authors have, have written drunk. There was a, there was a lot of it about, and it was worrying and perplexing sometimes to watch, as well as being funny. But it was a, it was a whole it, it's a whole lost world. It, in, in fact, I think most people coming into journalism, or indeed coming out of university today would be completely and utterly amazed if they realised that the world had ever been like that, yeah. smelled like that, looked like that, sounded like that. It's utterly gone. Mm. And one of the reasons why I welcome the suggestion that came from the editor of the critics to write about this was that, that it, it, is a, it is such a lost world and, and when people like me die, uh, there won't be any memory of it. Yeah. It's just, it will just completely have gone because although there this is quite scholarly writings in the British Journalism Review by, by Paul Routledge and others about the industrial correspondence, they haven't tended to go into the, the madness of it no. uh, to the extent that that article did. No, quite. But the other thing that struck me as well was the colourful nature of some of the other figures in the game, as it were, you know, not the journalists, but some of the union leaders who were similarly oh, yeah. imbued with little superhuman powers of drinking, you know, big, uh, you know and sort of carousing and generally uh, they were very, very interesting people, which we, we don't have many of in, in the world now either. No, these are real men. Not many. Some of them were were, were, were hard drinking, and some of them were not. Uh, the, the coal miners tended to be. It's a, it, it goes with the with the trade. Mm. It's, it's a, the same with sailors. There's an awful lot of drinking and dangerous jobs. Uh, but a lot of the others were stone cold sober. I, I, I don't I don't know whether Jack Jones ever drank very much, for instance. But he was a mostly powerful person to meet. Yes. But Joe Gormley, the miners' leader, who I remember being introduced to, it's the first time I ever really saw power. Mm. radiating from a human individual, it yeah. just, it, it was just there. You, you, it, 
it filled the room. Yeah. And this was this was a person who really who had power, knew he had it, uh, intended to use it, and it was an fascinating education. I always refer to my my time in Fleet Street as, as a long, now uh, nearly um, more than forty year remedial course at the University of Fleet Street. Yes. After the failures of my conventional university education, and my goodness, you saw a lot of uh, really important things of that kind, mm. the, the true nature of power face-to-face -face being one of them. But these were all guys as well, the trade union people, they, they'd all fought their way up uh, to prominence and power by being brave and by being indomitable and by being tough. And you could not respect them even if you disagreed with them mm. completely. No, quite. And also, I remember when I got into newspapers, it was probably the early 80s, and there were some really sort of genuinely good and interesting and very bad people as well. But you learned from all those people various different things, you know, the crime correspondents all knew the police, you know, the industrial correspondents, as you say, knew all the union leaders, you know. And now it seems to me that we've got this kind of university class of, of you know, the, state, the working from home brigade um, who don't come with any sort of uh, experience of life, really. You know, they haven't come through the trade system, which is what most journalists did no. when I started. They, it was a trade. It wasn't, you didn't go to university to have to become a journalist. Well, I came out of the university, but I then had to do this extraordinary thing. I had to sign articles as, a, as an indentured apprentice right. uh, go and, to go and work for a newspaper. Although they, were, they made a big thing out of recruiting graduates, it was made plain from the start that what you had to learn from the beginning. Yeah. And at, the end, at the end of every week, when being sneered at by the others for not knowing any law or how to write stories right. or, how, or how to write a headline or all those other things, which is very educational, at the end of that, uh, we were then... Put in a classroom with a with a with a primary school teacher who taught us shorthand. Yeah, it was right back to the beginning. And right. uh, but the, the problem with the the absolute takeover of the graduates uh, in, in everything is that that kind of thing is, is pushed to one side. But also the training grounds have gone. The old local newspapers are amazing. It was Swindon Evening Advertiser when I joined it in 1973. It had a full time librarian. Yes, and, and, a, and, a, and a full-scale cuttings library going with an absolute. They probably knew everything there was to know about the, the history of Wiltshire, right, off the top of his head. Yeah, and, and, and a lot of the reporters were, had, had immensely long experience in the place. All that's dissipated now. You're very lucky if you find local newspapers anything like that level of resources mm. or experience, and so people who who go to them are not going to have much time to learn. In any case, all that's lost. Mm. Yeah, and I think uh, as, a, as a general sort of principle, our overall kind of watching of what goes on at local government level has gone because the people who used to keep an eye on the council were the guys in the local papers. And now the council basically don't worry, have to worry about that because they haven't got anybody to cover what they do. It's certainly not as good as it was. I mean, mm. there are obviously exceptions. There are places where they still try, try, try reasonably hard, but it's harder with the resources they have to do it. And the other thing, of course, is not being covered properly is the criminal justice system. Yes. Of course. Right. Which we used to do as an absolutely... You, you, we always had somebody there. Right. Who couldn't go unnoticed, and that's an important part of justice: is that it's done in public, and, yes. uh, and that the, the free press is, is is keeping an eye on it. And that has uh, shriveled away in in the past. Yeah. Again, there are, there are people who still do do it, but it's nothing like the scale that it used to be at. No. I think you could probably be arrested, tried, uh, and convicted uh, these days without anybody ever knowing. Yes. I think that's true. And the, 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 the sad state of the judicial system as well uh, is not reported upon because uh, it really is failing massively. I talk to barristers who tell me every day um, that, you know, there's a huge backlog of cases. There's not enough lawyers. You know, the, the lawyers who do work on legal aid don't get paid enough. Uh, and, and, you know, there's not enough open courts. There's loads of courts sitting empty at the moment.
No, it's a national, it's a national scandal, and uh, I think two people, I, the, the guy who, who posts as, as barrister blogger, and the other one who I don't like very much, but who's done good work on mm. this, the secret barrister, have done what they can mm. uh, to reveal this. But I think one of the reasons why it's got as bad as it is is because it simply isn't covered anymore as it, as it used to be, and also relations between the police and the press have been quite seriously disrupted by many, many things over the past mm. over the past twenty years. And, and so the, the, the general coverage of criminal justice is, is, is much, much weaker. Yes, I think so. Let's talk a bit about your uh, particular controversy this weekend. You wrote a piece about um, uh, Ridley Road, which is the BBC's new uh, sort of drama on a Sunday night. Um, and you got rather surprisingly taken to task for it. Well, I, I didn't think I was taking the task, but I think the criticisms that were levelled against it were just plain wrong. What I pointed out was that if you watch it, I mean, you can watch it on the iPlayer, and you, uh, one one reviewer rather amusingly referred to it as "call the midwife with fascists," mm. uh, but it, it, it is um, call the fascists. <laughs> call the fascists, but but the, the, because it's 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 it obviously. It, it, it exploits the, the the rather different glamour of the era, you know, the, the suspender belts and all the rest yeah. of it. Uh, that, but it, it is, um, it states on screen, I, can't, I haven't got the direct quotation in front of me, that, uh, that Colin Jordan, the, the Timbot Nazi, who, who is the, the central villain of it, uh, was, was gaining public support at the time. Now, I just don't think this is true. Mm. And I went back, and this is one of the great things newspaper people could do. I went back down into the old, uh, in, into the old Associated Newspapers Cuttings Library to look up Colin Jordan. And he was a figure of fun. Right. And they, the, the first episode features a demonstration. It's not very clear. It doesn't actually, the, 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 the version of it in, in the TV drama doesn't actually misrepresent it, but it doesn't make it as clear, anything like as clear as the newspaper reports do. That when Colin Jordan and his fellow neo-Nazis turned up in Trafalgar Square, and started saying Hitler was right. They were mobbed by at least 2,000 opponents mm. who pelted them with, 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 with uh, pennies and tomatoes and drove them from the platform. Uh, Colin Jordan himself had to take refuge in, in, in the underground station. The police closed the entrance to the underground so he could, so he could run away. Right. He wasn't popular. Support wasn't rising. And there's another element in this. And actually, a reviewer in Left Wing magazine, the New Statesman, has picked up on this point as well. It's worth noticing. <laughs> But the the people who are, the, as it were, the ordinary people who are portrayed as being sympathetic to Colin Jordan yeah. are, are made to say things like, we need to take back our country, to make them sound like, uh, basically like, like Leave campaign supporters of today. Yes. I think that's completely unfair, mm. neither, either to anybody who felt conservative in the early 60s when things were, when things were, when they, all their homes were being demolished and replaced with concrete flats and supermarkets were replacing their corner shops and whatever. Mm. But anybody like that was somehow a fascist dupe. I, I just think that's misleading. Yeah. I thought the, the attacks that came, they said, what, what are you saying that nobody attacked Jews? Well, no, of course, people, the, the college one was a revolting person and his supporters did terrible mm. things. But that doesn't mean that he was politically significant at the time. I no. And I suspect... He was with his mother in a, in a, in a, in a suburban house. His right. mother was called Bertha. He had a, he had a mad leather-clad wife who went around wearing a Nazi pendant. And right. whenever, whenever she tried to get a taxi in London, the taxi driver said, I was taking you, love. Right. Uh, and one of, them actually, one of them actually pulled it off and was taken to court for it. He yeah. said, well, I don't care. I'm not chauffeuring Nazis around right. London. They were ludicrous people. They had a wedding ceremony when they cut their cut their arms open mm. and mingled their blood. It was a lunatic. So right. they did not have... I don't, if you look up election results 
opinion polls from the time, I do not think you will find there was anything remotely resembling a surge of support for these nutcases. And yes. I, I think, sure, they were bad people. And, 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 uh, but the other thing about Colin Jordan is that he was locked up mm. uh, by the state. He wasn't ignored and, and left to do what he wanted to do. He, he set up a, a ludicrous private army. And he was caught at it and was put in jail where they right. made him make television aerials. Yes. And I suppose you're, what you're suggesting or you suspect is going on here is that the BBC are taking this and using it as an opportunity to draw comparisons, which I'm simply not there. Well, that's what it looks like to me. And I say, you look, at the, look, look at the New States from Television Review. And I think there's a, these would be very different political opinions from me and a wholly different area. Of them. But they, I think they sent something similar in here. And I, I, I just think it's... It, it's it's just a, an abuse of drama. I mean, doubtless, I, some people think Ridley, Ridley Rose is a good book. I, I haven't read it. I couldn't say, but uh, there's, there's no reason not to make dramas about these things. But the problem with dramas about the past is that people get the get the impression that they're true, and yes. huge damage has been done by the the Netflix series The Crown. Yes, telling lots and lots of things which are straightforwardly untrue mm. about the royal family and, and, and British high politics. But because they've been on television, millions of people believe that's what happened. Yes. I love the fact that I love the fact as well that it's a sort of footnote, isn't it? Sometimes and sometimes it's not even there when they say something like, you know, some of the events portrayed in this drama uh, didn't happen. <laughs> sort of, you know, as if that's okay. It's not okay. The giveaway is based on actual events. Yes, like some some hideous product which is made with made with real lemons. Yes, I've dropped a lemon in there somewhere, but it's not actually made of lemon. No. And it's based on real events, but it doesn't actually portray real events. No. In fact, it distorts them. And I, 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 I wish I thought that this didn't matter. But people do. I mean, I've caught myself at it sometimes. People do take fiction as being a key to the past if it describes historical events. Mm. And they are influenced by it. And it's ridiculous to pretend that they're not. Yes. Or to pretend that this kind of drama doesn't have political effect. I had a long row with the BBC about Call the Midwife and its portrayal of the abortion uh, law reforms. And they would not accept that it was reasonable to say that that there's a drama watched by millions of people uh, which dwelt on historical events uh, had no effects on people's people's thinking or or should be subject to any kind of rules about impartiality. Yes, because if that were the case, why on earth would you have to write something which appears on the face of it to be a political statement as part of a drama? Speaking of dramas of real events, though, I, I see that you also mentioned this weekend the Blair Brown documentary, which, oh, yeah. I, which I'm finding quite fascinating, actually. I've only seen the first two so far. Um, I haven't seen your appearance in it yet. but um, uh, well, It's quite early on. It's in, it's in, I think, the first one. Oh, is it? Oh, maybe I missed it then. It's so fast that you, you probably missed it. Oh, maybe I missed it. But it's quite a good, show. It's quite a good, um, it's quite a good documentary series series i think well it's good in the, in the it, 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 it's interesting i mean i i've, I've watched i think a lot now and i'm interested because partly it's, it's wonderful to see how much older everybody's got since then oh they look so young uh, don't they it's amazing always amusing but uh, what it does is it's, it's it, it basically goes on as, as if it was just a, a, a personal tussle between blair and brown yeah. the actual things that the blair government did the huge colossal changes in our society breaking up the united kingdom uh, destroying the, the House of Lords as an, uh, as an effective revising chamber, mm. alter, altering the Constitution, uh, bringing in equality diversity as the official national religion, uh, utterly uh, surrendering to the Irish Republican Army in, in Northern Ireland mm. under American pressure. All these things are, are in the background, while the principal drama is, does Blair like Brown? Right. How did they get on at dinner? 
uh, was he rude about him, uh, and uh, and who was on whose side? Mm. Well, this is all very well, it's so popular, but this, the task is still not done of explaining what New Labour actually did and mm. what an enormous impact it made. And I'm, I, although, as I say, it's, it's fascinating viewing, it isn't. It doesn't actually explain at all no. what was going on. You could watch the whole lot of it. At the end of it, you'd be no wiser about how the country was transformed. And do you think that's why it was transformed? And do you think that's because they're trying to portray them as more than they were, as men of great sort of higher learning and and men of great sort of ideas as opposed to um, what they actually ended up leaving us with, which we still have the remnants of today? No, I just think it's because a lot of the people involved don't understand this either. Uh, There is a very, very limited understanding. I, I, I did tiny public meeting in Manchester last week on the fringes of the Tory party mm. conference and I said, here is the problem for all of you people, if you if you weren't trained in Marxism Leninism, and you were never a Trotskyist, then your chances of understanding what's going on are, are, are minimal you simply have never read the instruction manual yeah. you don't know what's going on mm. and, and you, it, it's, it's extraordinary how ill-equipped most journalists are for understanding the real nature of politics and how easily they're taken in by the, the superficials. Obviously, a personal battle with your chancellor and prime minister, especially when they're as different people as Gordon Brown and, and, and the Blair creature, is, is, is fascinating in itself as a drama. But it really does seem to me time for somebody to go through that government and say, what did they actually do? Hmm. Uh, and, and how did they do it? Uh, rather than this incessant, uh, incessant personalised. Yeah. Well, I remember talking to Alistair Campbell once when I was down at College Green, and and I sort of accused him of uh, of setting up the court, um, the Supreme Court, uh, while Blair was in charge, so that uh, Boris Johnson now could be taken to that court and found to be in breach of a law that he didn't know existed. Um, and I said, you know, look at all the things that you did, and he, and he said to me, I wish we'd done more. Of course. Alistair is a fantastic... Somebody... I, I don't know how you would do it because I don't know where, where he'd ever come clean about it. Alistair is an extraordinarily intelligent and focused person yeah. and was, in many cases, the, the, the true executive prime minister for a large part of that period mm. and a, a man of a, a very strong left-wing convictions, uh, summed up in the fact that he's, he, he has never <laughs> married the mother of his children on principle. Yeah. Uh, it's a principle I don't agree with, but you can't deny that it exists and that he's fulfilled it. And he is also absolutely furiously passionate about yes. the issue. Has, has he also, has, as is the mother of his children, Fiona Miller. And these are huge issues, mm. uh, which betoken a very, very deep, uh, in my view, very deep, very left-wing uh, attitude towards life and the universe and everything, which we know so little about. Yes. And it, this, the, the, the whole New Labour project was driven by people who were far, far more left-wing than they appeared yes. to Although his left-wing principles don't presumably extend to him knocking together two rather large houses in a very expensive part of North London. Of, of that, I, I, I know nothing. <laughs> you, you have to understand that the, that, that uh, two great statements made by leaders of the left in the past uh, 20 years, one was Deng Xiaoping, who remarked that to get rich is glorious. <laughs> uh, and he's about, about as left-wing as you can get. I think Peter Mandelson echoed yeah. it by saying he was totally relaxed about people getting filthy rich. The left don't care about that anymore. Mm. It doesn't. It isn't the, the, the issue of the, the, the issue of personal wealth, indeed, of capitalism, doesn't bother them. What they're, they've gone back to worrying about power, uh, and it, it's 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 ruthless exercise for a, a radical aim. This is. They've gone really back, as I say many times, to the French Revolution, not the Russian Revolution. And yeah. it, it doesn't have much to do with money. Uh, they're absolutely not against people having money anymore. 
No, interesting stuff. Peter, we're out of time, sadly. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Hitchens, Mail on Sunday columnist, fascinating uh, as ever uh, with his views on what the BBC do uh, to rewrite history. Uh, and of course, what is going on out there in the big wide world? Are we having a crisis of confidence? Is there a crisis in the energy market? Are we running out of everything? I think the answer to an awful lot of these questions is no. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, um, we were talking earlier about a great many things to do with shortages. We've been hearing over the weekend that people have been panic buying toilet paper again, uh, that people have been queuing for petrol stations. I personally haven't seen anyone queuing for petrol uh, over the course of pretty much the last week. Um, I haven't seen any shelves emptied either. Whether you have or not, uh, I suspect uh, is going to be the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, because none of you have called me to say I can't get hold of anything. I can't get hold of any satsumas or I can't get any bacon. We're hearing that there's going to be a of pigs cold because there's not enough butchers to butcher them so they're going to kill them anyway and just not eat them which doesn't make a lot of sense to me we're going to talk now to councillor darren rodwell who's the vice chair of environment the economy and housing and transport board of the local government association that sounds like a big job darren a very good morning to you Good morning, Mike. Now, um, I'm getting a bit fed up with all these dire warnings that we keep being told are going to come our way uh, for Christmas. And one of the latest ones is that we're not going to have enough gritting lorries to go around. Normally, we get told we haven't got any grit because nobody's bought any. So this year, it's going to be slightly different. Uh, presumably, we haven't got any drivers to drive the gritting lorries. Is that right? Well, that's that's the concern. It's fair to say we have enough lorries because uh, all local authorities have them. Uh, where we're concerned as local authorities is we can't pay the money that the private sector are paying for drivers now, right. especially these vehicles because they're HGV2 vehicles. Uh, so, you know, there is a concern that we will do everything we can to try and mitigate that. But at the end of the day, people will go where the money is and the money's not in local government. Yes. And would you normally be outsourcing those jobs to people from other transportation companies? Or are these, I mean, are you saying you'd, you would normally have people working for the council who would do that job, but they've now left? Yeah, by and large, it's local authorities would be local employees of the authority. Um, but if you look at what the money is being offered now, in uh, the private sector for HGV2 drivers, in, in fact, forklift drivers all the way up. Anything mm. that involves some sort of qualification now, yeah. they're in a demand situation because the logistics, as you were speaking earlier, you know, there is there are problems uh, where, you know, the, the goods are not getting to right. the shelves or, or, or the fuel's not getting to the pumps. What about the bin drive, bin lorries? Because a lot of the councils now outsource the bin lorry collection, don't they? And, and the private companies doing that. Could you not, you know, sort of piggyback on the back of those? Well, again, not all councils do. Mine in my borough aren't. We, we run our own services. And uh, again, they are there to do one particular job. So it's a contract. So that contract is to collect the waste. Again, we are finding across the whole LGA family a real issue about even doing that job. Mm. So whilst we're having a problem collecting people's bins, which we are uh, across the country, uh, this is just another warning that we have to let government know about that by de-investing in local government is it's costing uh, a lot across the services that we provide. Uh, local government provides hundreds of services on a daily basis uh, and, you know, we are concerned that we won't be able to grit the roads, which makes it bad for business. Yes, well, it does. And it makes it rather dangerous as well. I mean, you might be accused of uh, allowing people to have accidents. Well, we're not accused. We're accused of many things. I can tell you that we do everything <laughs> we can. And that's why we're that's why we are 
uh, trying to say to government. But I mean, surely it's it's a bit of a health and safety issue, isn't it? Gritting the roads. Oh, I think we've lost Councillor Darren Rodwell. Uh, just when he was about to tell us about how badly off they were and sort of Ian Blackford style, ask for a bit more money from uh, from the national government. But we'll see if we can get back to him on that. Uh, how about this one from Jackie in Walsall? She says, Mike, the food and fuel shortages only appear to affect Guardian and independent readers. I haven't seen any empty shelves and fuel stations seem to be back to normal. Well, that's absolutely right. There's no question in my mind uh, that the fuel shortage is over. There never really was a fuel shortage anyway. It was just because so many people were buying fuel they didn't need. I think we've got Darren back. Darren, are we, are we back with you? Yeah, unfortunately, obviously, uh, we, hadn't, we hadn't paid the bill. You for the, haven't paid the electricity <laughs> bill either. I mean, that's, you know, well, I mean, you're always complaining that you're hard up, aren't you? Do you know what they do in America, which I think is a great idea, and I know that it might not work everywhere, but... Everyone in, in, in sort of a small town, say, for example, they, if you've got a pickup truck or something like that, you have a little grit holder on the back of the pickup truck um, and it distributes grit as you drive. You know, you fill it up before you go out and it actually means that everybody who's driving around is doing their own a bit of their own sort of gritting, which I think is a really interesting idea. It is, but it depends who's going to sue you afterwards, because we do have uh, also an American culture now coming into this country where you sue everyone for everything. So I'd rather leave it to local government, who are the experts. And to say that we have a perceived uh, problem when it comes to finances, there's nothing perceived on a £10 billion shortfall that uh, local government, by the way, the leader of the local government association is a conservative has said to government for us to run the services that we need to run we need to be funded appropriately and you know through covid i think listeners have to also know that you know whilst the private sector were bailed out to the tune of 350 billion pound local government wasn't we we got about eight to nine billion uh, to to support everyone so we are just letting people know that we perceive there could be a problem because of the shortages we're seeing in logistics at the moment, gritting roads is another logistics issue. Uh, we want to make sure that people are safe and business can do their job across the country. So what was the problem during COVID for your employees then, Darren? Well, 76% of my employees in my council work from home. The rest of them worked uh, on the front line and I think they did a fantastic job. In fact, we never missed a weekly bin collection over that period but those same employees will now be offered a lot more money to go and work in the private sector that we can't match so whilst whilst there are some benefits of working for local government so early start early finish actually that's pretty much um not anywhere near what you can get financially from doing what would be a, a a job with less responsibility Yes, but I mean, that's just the market for you, isn't it, really? I mean, people who work for local government also probably would say they get better conditions of work than they do in a private sector. They get better pension, probably. They get better holiday pay. They can retire earlier. All of those things are the reason why you work in the public sector. Well, that used to be the reason. People never worked in the public sector. I was going to say, that used to be the reason, Mike. It's yeah. not so much today. Let's, let's be honest about where we are actually in in local government. Local government is, is the fourth emergency service supporting every citizen. We were the people that kept the glue together of the whole nation. If we hadn't have done our job collectively, then actually the NHS wouldn't have been able to do their job in saving people's lives. So whilst I would agree at one time that was very much the case, it really isn't today. When I look at well, what which we're bit of that isn't true then? 
Well, the fact of the matter is, if a lorry driver now with Tesco's can get, you know, £10,000 more a year, actually, they would go off and do that. If you look at the local government pension, at the level you're talking about, you know, one of our drivers is on about, in my borough, about 24,000. Right. Well, that's, that's not a pension that's going to last you living in the capital city. So there is a real disparity now between what's happening in the private sector and what's happening in the public sector. And, you know, I have to admire all the staff in the public sector for doing the work they've done through COVID. And all we're saying collectively, as the LGA is, this is another issue that we need to be ready for mm. um, because it could really affect the country. Now, have you got all your staff back to work now in the offices? Because that's what Boris Johnson wants you to do. Well, all my staff have been working throughout. They just work remotely. Or yeah, but that's, work yeah, but that's not the question, is it? Are they back in the office? How You said 76% of them are working from home. Yeah. How many of them are working from home now? Well, the vast majority are still working Why? from home because they, they can do. Why? They don't need to be in the office. Well, no, the they job do need they... to be in the office because they need to be no. able to answer queries. You know, we've all had right. problems. No, listen to me. We've all had problems, no, no, right? No, we, listen, no, listen. Yeah. No, you, I'll let you speak in a minute. I'll let you speak in a minute. We've all had problems talking to people who are working from home because they can't access the right information. It all takes a lot longer. They always apologise for the fact that they're working from home. You know as well as I do, Darren, it's not the same thing. Okay, so Mike, with the technology we have today, so I'm talking to you on a phone, yeah. doing this interview right now, I happen to be in the town hall because I'm doing some of the meetings today in the town hall. Mm. I can tell you that my staff doing the job that they do, it's been assessed and whether they need to be in an office or whether they need to be where their clients are. So a lot of the staff, uh, so if I take uh, my wife, who works for the local authority as well, at one time she used to have to come into an office five days a week uh -huh. uh, just to report in, if you like, before going out and supporting the vulnerable part staff, uh, you know, residents she was doing and her staff. Today, though, she doesn't need to do that. She can log on from home. Then she can go and work lo in the locality she works in, which is near where we live, she, that's better for the yeah, but that's a, that's a different thing. That's a different no, no, thing. It's not. Yeah, it's, it is. It's I'm talking about. All right, all right. Let's, all right. Well, let, what we're doing is we're being more flexible with the staff we've got in the way we need them to work, and it's better for them. No, I, under so that I understand that. But if you're, if you're if you're talking about somebody whose work takes them outside the office, as a general rule, then of course that would make sense. However, most of the staff that work for you uh, in the council would, would would normally be in an office nine to five, whatever it is, right? And I'm asking you, how many of those are now working from home? Uh, the vast majority are still working from home because they can, because we have the technology for them to do so. Well, why, so have, you still got, all right, well, why have you still got an office then? Oh, well, actually, we've closed down two of our major offices. Uh, one of them has become CU London, which is a modern university. And the other oh, one great. is becoming is that, a is that, are, we, are we making any money out of that as, as taxpayers? Uh, actually, yes, you are. So what was a negative half a million is now a positive 600,000 oh, a year. So you'll be able to give and us a bit of a re council Mike, tax rebate you, then, Darren. Uh, uh, Michael, if you'd like me to finish the point, uh, as you asked the question. You're always uh, allowed to finish time, the point, Darren. I'm also allowed to interrupt you because that's my job. And, and my job is to give you an answer yep. if you allow me to. So not only have we done that, we've also managed to make sure that the services we provide, bearing in mind we have serious uh, shortfalls in financing coming from central government is allowing us to run the services we need to run. Uh, as with that, 
I came on talking about LGA. Obviously, I'm now talking about my own council. Yeah. Um, and we're talking about, you know, situation that we find ourselves in. Yes. I do need to go because I've got All another right. meeting because obviously I've got my chief exec in the room with me right now. Okay. Well, really do, give nice him, do give him my best regards. Well, I'll ask you one final it's question. Oh, it's a her. Well, give her my regards as well. I will um, do. I don't normally gender uh, identify people without seeing them, but there we are. Um, what about um, the council tax price rises? Because ever since about, I don't know, 10 years ago, my council tax has never gone down. It's only ever gone up, but I'm now paying probably 20% more than I used to. So if you say that you're uh, suffering from a shortfall, where's all the money going? So in, I can only, I'll speak for my council. 16% of the money we get uh, uh, to run the council comes from council tax. Uh, again, if we look at what's really happened in the last decade, as you just mentioned about your council tax going up, um, the council tax money really is not even covering the shortfall we got from central government. So we're, what we, every pound we had in 2010, we now only have about 35p of that. And again, as I said before, the council tax only covers 16%. So the funding formula is so misaligned. And again, we've been asking as the LGA on government to realign the funding formula. So actually people get the services they duly need and pay for in a way that works for them on a daily basis. I'll leave you this thought from Sam, who's texted in having listened to your conversation. Local councils working from home are grinding everything to a snail's pace. Shocking service. Things are taking too long. Comfort over efficiency. Don't listen. They don't listen to the frustration and feedback, which says it's rubbish. OK, I'll take it another way. If it wasn't for local government, you wouldn't have had the services you needed through COVID. The NHS would have fallen over and government wouldn't have been able to deliver what they need to deliver to keep people safe. We all have the right to have a difference of opinion. I think I have the best staff in the world and I thank them every day for the work they do on behalf of every resident. I'm very glad that you feel that way, Darren, but don't forget that the taxpayers are the ones responsible for paying for it. And if it wasn't for us, uh, you wouldn't exist. And they're also voters. So I'm quite happy with what I do and the work we do trying to support those people. I'm going to have to go now, Michael, because I have uh, come on about <laughs> doing... Uh, all right, Darren. You know, listen, listen, time is always short. Listen, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Appreciate your time. Uh, that was Councillor Darren Rodwell. And no wonder he's got to go. Look what he has to do. Vice Chair of Environment, Economy, Housing and Transport. Blimey, that's the lot, isn't it? Anyway, apparently there's going to be a shortage of gritting lorries. Maybe. Or maybe not. This is Talk Radio. Talk <laughs> Radio. 